The Paranet Podcast, a Dresden Files book club. Welcome to The Paranet Podcast with your hosts, me, Patrick Lunn, and... Me, Rob Davis. We have a incredible show for you guys today. Um, I don't think that's going to be selling it short. I've got a good vibe, I've got a good feeling. Uh, we are midweek recording again, which does mean that we're going to be a bit goofy. Um, but uh, we know you love it, so uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so we are uh, going to be covering uh, chapters uh, nine, ten, eleven, and twelve of Death Mass. Today, uh, as well as some paranetworking, uh, talking about uh, how you could do Dresden Files as a war game, um, just to mix it up a bit and to uh, have another different slant. Um, but before we get into all of that, um, it's our regular, normal, like, I don't know, once a month check in on. Uh, what me and Rob have been reading outside of Dresden Files. Um, so, Rob, what have you been reading outside of Dresden Files? Oh, God. Um, that is a very good question. What am I reading? What am I reading? I've started um, book two of the Malazan series. I don't know if I've mentioned that yet. Um, yeah. I'm not uh, aware of the series. Yeah, it's... Um, I don't know how to explain or describe it, <laughs> but the first book okay. took me, um, first book took me like <laughs> a year to read, and I finished. I think I finished it around this sort of time last year, like as we were going into the first lockdown, and I was just kind of like wrapped it all up, and I I, I pre-bought the next like nine books in the series, and I was of like, oh, I'll, I'll start the second one, not now because that was actually really quite dense. Um, yeah, and I think, well, not the issue as such, but I think you, you go into most stories, and you, you know, there's like a protagonist to follow, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Whereas this was that there was no clear protagonist, and it kept jumping from various different characters, which I know unless you're expecting that, it's very difficult to like. I know, like you get attached to a character, and then as soon as you're attached to this character, they either die, or suddenly it just leaves them and focuses on another group of people, and that other character just doesn't come back until the end. Um, it's very weird, but very good. Um, yeah, yeah, that seems. I've got that, that's, a, that's a way to approach character development. <laughs> yeah, I've, uh, I mean, weirdly enough, the the author Stephen Erickson has done. I say he has done. He, he he wrote an essay on characterization a few years ago because people were criticizing that his characters are undeveloped because of this. Um, I haven't read this essay because I, I was a bit worried that it might contain spoilers. Um, but yeah, I've gone into the second book with this kind of not getting attached and kind of knowing that it will change viewpoints quite a lot. Um, and just as well, because I'm only a hundred pages in, and it's already jumped all over the place. But I think <laughs> go, going into it and expecting it this time, I'm a lot less confused, I guess. Um, 
yeah, that, that's that's pretty much all I'm reading at the moment. I'm going through it very slowly, purely because of the amount of work and prep I'm doing at the moment with other stuff like masters and freelancing and shit. How about you? Yeah, um, it's been uh, it's been a little slow on the reading front uh, last couple of weeks. Um, I think the biggest stuff that I've read. Uh, the new Dungeon Dragons expansion, Candlekeep Mysteries, um, is uh, really, really cool. It's essentially like a, an anthology of uh, about 16 different uh, adventures written by uh, many well-known D&D creators, um, from like Wizards of the Coast people to like wider uh uh, live play uh, people. Um, the one that I was really excited to read was Amy Vorpal's mm. uh, uh, adventure because she's a, a, a one that I'm a particular fan of because she's appeared on some of my favourite uh, actual play shows like Dimension 20 and um, she's done some really, really cool um, stuff within the D&D community so it was, it was great to see her do something and she didn't disappoint reading her story um it's really interesting it's it's like a set of one shots so i guess it's um it's a great collection if you don't get to play with the same group week in week out or if your group just wants to try out some new characters or something yeah um it's it's got some really fun different takes on those sort of stories um like uh you have the ability to to run like a one shot that takes characters to the Feywild. You've got one that's set in like uh, alternate dimension kind of stuff, um, and then you've got some that are a little bit more traditional, but everything has kind of like a twist on it. Um, so that's pretty cool. Um, I comic book wise, uh, I'm a bit slow at the moment. Um, just, just finding time. Uh, I've recently, uh, recently jumped back into uh, Warhammer models, mm. much to my shame. <laughs> and, uh, I've been really enjoying painting them. It's become like a bit of an outlet, um, uh, just to kind of sit and listen to a podcast or something and, and paint for a couple of hours. Uh, and that's that's eight into my book time. Um, that being said, I'm still continuing with the Dawn of X stuff, um, which has been just fantastic and um, is going into its next kind of period, uh, I think, um, at the moment, which uh, is post-Swords of X, uh, or X of Swords, I can't remember which one it is, um, uh, and uh, is a new... Uh, is. Yeah, a new a new situation anyway uh, for the X Men, and I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to them changing it up because the only issue with the Dawn of X stuff is it does feel sometimes like the stakes are quite low because none of the mutants can die uh, because of their, yeah. their current setup. Um, yeah. Uh, apart from that, um, just really chilling out, um, listening to lots of podcasts, and. Still making our way through the Horus Heresy book series, which I think is something I've been referencing since our first episodes. Yeah, um, it has. Can confirm. 
I'm on I'm on book sixteen now. Um Jesus. Which is is turning into my favourite book. Um possibly. Um I'm just just want to get the title. Uh, Prospero Burns by Dan Abnett, which is the first book taken from the Space Wolves perspective, which is a Viking uh, detachment of the Space Marines, I guess. Um, and they they have like a very strong uh, set of like Viking esque traditions. Um, and 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 uh, yeah, I love my, myself some Viking stuff. So uh, <laughs> lots and lots of fun there. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that that's about it. And obviously, uh, Death Masks, which has been a lot of fun. Um, I, I listened back to back. I was I was doing the notes for today's episode, um, and then ended up continuing to listen and then doing the notes for the next episode. Just because I was enjoying it so much, um, it's it's a it's a wild ride. It's a lot of fun. Oh man! Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, that's that's me. Um. I don't. I don't think there's much else. Oh, I finished The Last of Us finally. The, the, the video one. game. Oh, nice. Yeah. I can't. Have you ever played it? Yeah, I. I started playing it in first year, um, like like really uh, like early on in first year. So I was about halfway through it when assignments dropped, and I was like, ah, and just stopped playing it. <laughs> um, and I, I think I picked it up again. I can't remember if it was twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen, but I finally finished it then, and I don't really remember much of it, like. <laughs> That's a very Rob story. <laughs> I, 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 I was about to say, I remember like when this happened, but I was like, that's not the end. That's nowhere near the end. So, <laughs> Do you remember the hospital? Yeah. I, that's, I remember... that's near the end. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll, I'll, for the sake of spoilers, I'll uh, discuss it with you another time, I guess. <laughs> no worries. It, it is a very easily spoilable thing. Oh, um, I've not played the second one yet, though. No, I so I finished the first one, and then I was like, "Oh, I, I could just do it a little bit more." So I started. So I played the uh, DLC. Yeah. Um, really, really enjoyed that. In fact, I think that was probably my favorite part of all of it. Um, and then I was like, "Okay, well, I'm, I'm still feeling it. Let's go for the second one." I went on the the uh, PlayStation Store. It's fifty five pounds. <laughs> yeah, it's um, <laughs> yeah. I was just like, ah, that's gonna wait for a couple of weeks. <laughs> With Easter coming up, it'll probably end up in um one of the sales again soon. Yeah, I'd have thought so. Um, I and there's, there's plenty. I'd normally have to with me anyway. I'll I'll buy a game for. X amount that I won't disclose, and then a week later it'll be like uh, free on PlayStation Plus. Oh, uh, I've been stung by that um, a few times. Yeah, it's, uh, it hurts. I think I got the so I had Bloodborne on a disc, and then I I finished the game, so I sold it, um, and then I was like, I really fancy playing some more Bloodborne, so I bought it again. Um, 
probably for about 20 quid uh, on the PlayStation Store with, like, DLC and whatever. Yeah. And then, it like, maybe within 10 days, it was one of the PlayStation Plus games. I think that happened to me as well, purely because I, I also had it, like, physically and got rid of it for the, you know, the same reason. And I remember you were at mine and you were like, oh, yeah, the DLC, like, Bloodborne with the DLC is now, like, you know, X amount. And I was like, oh, sick. I remember we were sat in my room and I downloaded it then. And then I remember, like, a week or two later, it was then free in the PlayStation Store. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you just have to, you pay your money, you take your chances, I guess. But then, uh, to, to be fair, like, £20 for Bloodborne plus DLC, like, you don't even need to think about it, mate. It's a good, it's a good price. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, um, Moving over to para networking, um, I I was trying to have a bit of a think uh, about what would be a fun Dresden Files sort of topic for today, and um, like I say, I've been getting back into Warhammer, uh, and I was like, it would be really really cool to have some Dresden Files minis um, to play around with. Um, and I was just wondering, uh, either I mean, obviously we've got the the kind of Dresden Files board game that's like a, a kind of cooperative uh, setup. Um, but I was wondering if you, if there was another sort of Dresden Files board game, whether that's uh, on a on a huge scale like Risk or something like that, or on a very micro scale like um, a skirmish game where you you put together your little team of either. Uh, Red Court vampires or Dresden's Paranet buddies, and like fight it out. Um, how you how you'd think that that would uh, kind of play out, and whether you'd play it, and yeah, that sort of thing, really. Yeah, um, I mean, I'll start off by saying that this is not my area whatsoever. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but I mean, l- luckily you're not just dropping on this this on me last minute. So I've had some time to think about it. And, I mean, at, at first I was like, oh, I don't think there's enough to really kind of play around with for something as big as this. But there really is. Like like you've listed them um, an example of the Red Court here. And, I mean, you've got... I mean, you take into account all factions. You've got the Red Court, White, supposedly the Jade that's only been mentioned by name. Black Court vampires, albeit there's only a few apparently, but then you've got like all the other factions, like the Fomor as well. I could see working really well in a kind of Warhammer esque type game. Yeah. Um, the fucking White Council as well. Like you've got a lot of factions around, and it's it kind of like Warhammer, I guess. Or at least my understanding of uh, 40k is there's no clear cut like, good guys, it's just I don't know, everyone's in that kind of grey area and I feel like that's how this would play out as that style of game because you wouldn't necessarily have the main characters as players, I guess, I mean they're like similar to like Lord of the Rings Warhammer where there would be that option but for the most part you've got my understanding of the game is you have X amount of points to spend on the army, so you'd have Mm-hmm. drones and then x amount of points going towards like the main quote unquote heroes as it were um 
And I feel with that kind of system, it could definitely work. And you'd have enough kind of heavy hitters per, like, faction. Yeah. Um, I think... Uh, I... I um... I find it really exciting to think of it like, yeah, like there's so many factions that you could play as. And um, I think uh, especially the last book of Dresden Files, like Battlegrounds. Yeah. Uh, we real feel for like what a war could look like in this. Um, and one of the other aspects of, of Warhammer uh, is that several factions can team up uh, like, there are some factions that are more reasonable to team up with other factions. So you have like ones that are friendly to each other, ones that are kind of indifferent and then ones that are hostile to each other. Hmm. So like you could have an alliance between the winter court and, uh, uh, the, you could have an alliance between the winter court and the, uh, white vampires. Um, and that would make sense. Uh, for them to go together, but then you could uh, say that like red uh, red vampires will never ever team up with the White Council, um, and kind of play around with that sort of thing. And that'd be cool to then throw in factions like Marcone's uh, kind of mafia gang um, and stuff. Um, I think you could also do something interesting with Dresden and have some sort of like investigation mechanic. Um, or something where, like, um, yeah. I'm not quite sure how, how it would work, but playing more around with, like, objectives and stuff, and, like, um, if there was two factions that were, like, neutral to each other, if you have Dresden and he does several different things, uh, he's able to, like, turn them against each other or something would be really cool. Um, I'm very, like, up his, up his street. Um... Yeah, I think, um, I don't know if you've seen that, there's like a Marvel and DC uh, miniatures game, or there are Marvel and DC miniatures games, I'm not sure if they're owned by the same people, um, that have kind of been around for the last couple of years. I assume I assume not Heroclix, or something similar. No, no. Um, more, more down like the Warhammer route, where it's like models that you paint and build and stuff. No, I've, I've been completely unaware of this. It's it's pretty cool. The only thing I will say is that like the cheapest models, um, so like they had like the Eradicator, you know, from Superman. Yeah. Uh, and he's like one of the cheapest models. Um, and I saw that was like eighteen pounds, and I was like, okay, well, I'll have a look at how much how much would it cost to get Superman, and it was like forty quid for just Superman as a miniature. Jesus. And I was like, oh, that's that's too spicy for me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that, and we both know that that's saying a lot. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, they've done a lot around like urban combat and stuff. Um, I know that particularly the Batman aspect of the DC miniatures game, they're now bringing out like a couple of box sets that you can play that are a bit cheaper and stuff. Um, and you get some like buildings that you can. Uh, you can build and then you can have like Batman swinging from building to building you could do some cool Dresden Files stuff with that as well um, like if you could if you had like a, a tower block built up you could have like 
red court vampires like hiding on the ceiling uh and stuff like that you could have like dresden using his electric abilities to like turn off lights and plunge areas into darkness um yeah i mean it's kind of just like we've talked a couple of times about the dresden files rpg and it's almost like looking at that rpg and zooming out a little yeah um but yeah i think i think it would be cool um uh, there's uh, like a, a small offshoot of uh, Warhammer 40k, which is called Kill Team, where you you can only have like five characters, but they're all. I mean, there's it's more like again, it is points, but generally speaking, the points makes so you only have like about five characters before someone at me, uh, <laughs> and um, you like you give each of those characters like a backstory and a personality, and they get like special character traits and features and stuff that you give them. So you could have like a group of white council wardens say, and you could make one like the, the bookish like spellcaster, one like um, a marksman, uh, another like a close combat specialist with like a dark past or something. Um, and fully like, here's my, here's my group of like five uh, wardens that are, I've created like these five distinct characters, um, and that would be really cool. I'd enjoy that. Yes, I mean, I yeah. <laughs> I I'd love to do like a um, a group from uh, Northern England, like have a Scouser, a Mank, someone from Leeds. Um, uh, oh, I'm trying to think. Uh, Someone from up Newcastle way, a Geordie. Uh, I was blanking on Geordie. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then we'll just have one Londoner and uh, see what happens. <laughs> yeah, fair, fair enough. If it's anything like when you come up here, um, <laughs> you'll just get uh, the Londoner will just get left out uh, to dry, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, that, that was really it. Going the other way and, and talking about something like Risk, um, I could see you playing as, like, the the heads of the White Council and trying to, like, run the war with the Red Court while keeping secrecy. Like, yeah, yeah um, like, like you have, you pull different cards and it's like, you can send wardens to this battlefield, but there's like a 10% chance that people will see them and see them casting magic. And you've got to like roll to see if they get seen while they're fighting the red court. Um, makes me think of games like, uh, is it pandemic where you've got to fight the, the virus going around? Yeah. That's the one relevant. I was going to say that that's the one that became, <laughs> A little more uh, taboo. That being said, apparently the sales of that game skyrocketed just post-COVID. Yeah, I I'm heard sure. that as well. I'm wondering if that's a combination of people trying to use it to find a cure. When I was working at a bookshop <laughs> and uh, like COVID first started being a thing at the end of 2019, um, it was surprising how many people started buying the stand by Stephen King, but they were asking for it and looking for it as if it was like a textbook and not like <laughs> a piece of fiction. So, I mean, I, 
I'm yeah, whatever. As long as you're, as long as you're finding something, the, finding uh, <laughs> Don't use the stand as your pandemic survival book. My God, no. Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, I I don't know. Yeah, I I just imagine someone being like, I've got no training in science, but I can I can roll dice like the best of them. I'm gonna solve this. <laughs> don't worry, guys. He's got this. <laughs> he bought the expansion packs. <laughs> um, cool. Yeah. Um, I, I that that was really it. Um. But I, I, I'm really interested to see where else Jim can go with the multimedia aspects of the Dresden Files because we've seen comic books, seen books, we've seen TV shows, uh, we've seen the card game, um, uh, we've seen the, the role playing game. What else is there for Jim to put his put his fingers in? Um, but a, a tabletop war game. Uh, <laughs> Or a line of like plush toys, a la Beanie Babies, um, which I would also be happy with. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that'd be interesting, but I I can get behind that in a weird way. Man, if I can get like a, a plush butters, I'll be happy. <laughs> it starts now. We'll see if we can get enough demand for it. <laughs> he just screams. He says. Half the fandom hates me. Half the fandom hates me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, cool. Yeah. So that's that's about it for power networking. A very loose, fun power networking. Um, I didn't give my normal spiel, so I'll do it now. Which is that power networking is where we tackle. This doesn't sound great now. The big issues in the Justin Files fandom. Maybe this isn't the big issue in the Justin Files fandom. Um, but uh, it's where we respond to stuff that Jim's doing. It's where we talk about new upcoming books. And when we've got downtime like we do now, it's where we tackle some of the, the questions in the Justin Files fandom and just have a nice discussion about bits, really. Um, so, yeah, uh, that was Power Networking. Um and uh heading over to the meat of the podcast. Um you've had all your veggies, now you get your meat. Um the Dresden Files Book Club, which is mine and Rob's uh ambitious attempt to go through every piece of Dresden Files media from start to finish chronologically. We're talking comic books. We're talking board games. We're talking uh, uh, video games, uh, shadow puppetry, and any other medium in between, as well as the main novels themselves. Um, we are currently on the fifth book of the Dresden Files series, Death Mass. And... Uh, we are we're already we're already pretty deep we're already pretty deep it's uh i would say it's it's midway up our shins uh and uh by the end of the episode we'll be we'll be heading up to the knee uh we're we're quite deep into death masks uh and uh having a hell of a time i think this is one that we've been looking forward to for a long time um 
every week when we do this, uh, I give a quick recap of last week's chapters, then Rob covers this week's chapters, then we do a little bit of Lit Crit and uh, geeking out, talking about things that will be important for future uh, points in the series, talking about uh, anything really that takes our fancy, um, often just descending into quotes from Peep Show. Uh, it really depends. Um, so yeah, um, last time on the Dresden Files, we started at chapter five, uh, where Harry went to the morgue and we met Waldo Butters, the polka loving assistant medical examiner demoted after correctly reporting in human remains from the velvet room. Uh, one of Bianca, the Red Court vampire's uh, little brothels, I guess, but with a murdery kind of tinge, as everything is in the Dresden Files universe. Uh, Waldo showed Harry and Murph a headless corpse. The left hand of the corpse uh, was missing, and the chest was significantly sliced up. Butters believed the man was tortured to death, but died of many diseases and plagues, some known and some unknown, to modern science that became uh, active in his body all at the same time eating him from the inside out harry points mirth towards the church mice death and says he'll try to figure out about the small tattoo on the body before them resembling an open eye Harry leaves the morgue and passes by two men before realising he's being followed. Turning around, he is attacked by a bear-like creature with two sets of eyes. Harry flees from the bear-like creature, running into one of the men he passed earlier. The man grabs him. Uh, no, Harry grabs the man and keeps running. The pair run into an, the other man that Harry passed. Harry turns to fight the bear and ends up in a soul gaze with the creature, discovering it's actually human with a heavyweight presence behind it. The soul gaze leaves Harry stunned and helpless. Both men that Harry tried to save while retreating reveal themselves to be the Knights of the Cross, Sanya and Shiro. Michael Carpenter arrives and it is on the three knights against a demon bear from hell. Once defeated, a coin drops from the dead body and the knights take care to collect it without touching it. The presence behind the human is revealed to be one of the fallen, Ursul. Michael informs Harry there are 29 more of the fallen and they are after him. Very, very quickly, that is uh, obviously the uh, first piece of silver, Judas Iscariot um, reference, uh, each of them um, is said to hold a evil fallen angel within it, within the Dresden Files universe. Um, we then go to chapter seven, where the group goes to St. Mary of the Angels Church, where a conversation kicks off about beliefs. Sanya tells Harry that despite receiving the sword from an archangel, he still considers himself to be agnostic. We also find out that the knights know Harry is looking for the shroud and that the fallen wasn't there to kill Harry, but recruit him, explaining that once you touch a fallen's coin, the fallen tempts you with power. 
Harry realizes what that temptation would be for him, taking into account his upcoming duel with Count Ortega. The coin is placed in the safety of Father Forthill, whilst Michael begs Harry to keep out of the case around the shroud for his own safety. That takes us to chapter 8. Back at Dresden's apartment, Harry consults Bob on everything. The Accords allow him to choose the weapon for the duel. Ortega gets to choose the location, and Harry needs a second. Bob identifies the tattoo that Harry found on the body as the Eye of Foth. Harry draws a symbol of the fallen, which was on the bear's head, and the coin. But Bob wants nothing to do with it. He explains the fallen, also known as the Denarians, are super powerful archangels that have fallen from grace. But typically, the humans they inhabit are also skilled, and with the coins are basically immortal, giving them time to gain knowledge, skill, and power. A deadly combination. Bob can't locate the shroud, as it is an artifact of faith, while he is a spirit of intellect. He tells Harry he can contact Ulshavaras, an oracle spirit, to find the shroud. Harry sends Bob to gather information while he summons the oracle spirit. Harry gets the location of the thieves in exchange for answering why he does what he does. To which Harry responds that he honestly doesn't know. Harry is also told that the knights don't want him involved because if he goes for the shroud, he would die, according to prophecy. What the knights don't know about the prophecy is that if Harry doesn't go to the shroud, they will all die, as will the city of Chicago. Dun, dun, dun! Over to you, Rob. God damn. Oh, <laughs> oh man. Well, in any case, um, <laughs> Harry decides that, you know, I'm going to look for the Shroud. And um, oh, I should also mention here that when I was listening to the chapters earlier, I was doing work. So I apologize if there's bits where I'm reading the notes and I sound a bit surprised. Um. <laughs> I just thought I'd get that out of the way now. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, what was I saying? Yeah, he proceeds with the search for the shroud. With the the plan being at this point, I think was to wait till like daylight, and then try and move in on the um, church mice. Is that what they're called? Church mice. Church mice. Mm-hmm. Church mice. Cool. Yeah, just church. it just sounds wrong when I say it. Church mice. Um, church mice. Yeah. Uh, there's also a bit of discussion here of time and prophecy within his universe, which I remember being... And th- this is why I mentioned the whole, like, being a bit hazy on memory despite listening to the chapters this morning, is because I remember the whole, like, philosoph- philosophical standpoint on it. I can't even say that word anymore. Um, but at the same time, I'm like, I can't actually remember what it is he actually said, which is... An interesting position to be in, but um, we'll get we'll get back to all this. Um, in the meantime, before you know, he's got a bit of time to kill. He decides to whip up some uh, tasty potions in the form of anti-venom for the red court saliva venom. And yeah, um, oh man, that had that's just reminded me of an idea I was meant to tell you for a D and D character, but. <laughs> 
that's completely <laughs> sidetracked. Um, at this point, Harry gets a phone call from none other than our favourite wizard of the White Council, that isn't Harry, Ebenezer McCoy. And hey, ass. Yeah, like I, I love this. Com- to be fair, any moment with McCoy is just something I really enjoy. So, I, yeah, I just want to address more people as Hoss. Yeah, hey, so, it it doesn't work with our accents though. Like I, I tried it. I remember again, kind of off track here, but I remember watching Lost as a, like in my early mid teens. And because of Sawyer, mm. I started calling people like you know by nicknames and you know stuff like horse and all that kind of stuff, and it just doesn't work with our accent. Just people thought—I mean, to be fair, I'm a dickhead anyway. But people thought I was a dickhead. <laughs> but um, I see. how are you doing, Hoss? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, immediately, I feel like a dickhead. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll try it in my thirties; it might work. But um, yeah, uh, Ebenezer McCoy calls, and he he's kind of telling Harry not not to worry about this duel because you know we it's kind of I feel insinuated that he's going to take care of it himself. Which, yes, I mean no knowing what what happens in like later books and stuff that that is totally how I read it this time round. Um, and much to McCoy's surprise, Harry just turns around to this and is like. No, you're not sorting out anything for me. I can deal with it myself. Um, and Harry kind of explains that this duel needs to happen. It needs to go down. And McCoy's kind of doing his old, you know, usual thing of you're you're in way over your head, kid. Better step down before you get, you know, the bull by the horns. Um, and Check then, yourselves before you wreck yourself, yeah, President. Yeah, exactly that. And. It's quite a nice moment here as well because they kind of take the time to just kind of chill. You know, they they have that little reminiscing moment where it's like, oh, it's not, oh, it's not like it was back down at the farm, is it? And they're like, oh yeah, like, like the you know that whole reminiscing on stories and shit where you're just kind of that would be an interesting read. Um, mm. Yeah, and we get all that. Um, yeah, and then Bob returns a bit like injured and shredded up just before dawn comes round. And he reports that Marcone currently has wards set up. Um and not only this, but is am I right in thinking Ortega's there with half a dozen vampires as well? Or is that I th- my understanding was that Bob tried to spy on both Marcone and Ortega and basically both that... of them have protection. That makes a lot more sense. Like this is what I mean by um, like distracted <laughs> early while listening because, like half of it goes in and I'm just kind of there being like, this is not how I remember it being. But yeah, um, <laughs> Harry tells Bob to you know like get get some rest, get some sleep, and we'll you know then sort something out to take care of these wards because wards are bad. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're bad and inconvenient if you're Dresden. If if you've got wards for yourself, they're fine. Um, <laughs> it's yeah, it's a bit like a security system. If you're a robber, a security system is bad. Yeah. <laughs> if if your job is breaking into places, it's not good. You don't want it there. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then we roll on to chapter ten, and I complete. I 
oh, oh man, I'll, we'll get onto it when we actually discuss it. I'll try and get through these notes. Um, there's a knock at the door because you know when isn't there a knock at the door? Um, and no, it's not a knock at the door. It sets his wards off. Sorry, my mistake. Um, and you know, Harry, Harry does the whole thing of going to the door and being like, "Who, who this?" And we're introduced to two characters, two major characters here. One being uh, Jared Kincaid, and none other than the Archive, who is also known as Ivy. But I don't think she introduces herself as Ivy. It's just the Archive because there's that whole thing, like she she comes in and Harry's like, "Who are you?" The Archive. But you're just a child. What's what's your actual name? The archive, and it kind of adds to that kind of I don't know light-hearted humor. I guess it's just it's just really nice. Um, yeah, yeah, and the 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 English of that conversation is then that Dresden ends up naming her Ivy because he's uncomfortable. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, um, and just for context here, the Ivy is a seven-year-old girl who's carrying like the sum total of human knowledge written over thousands of years or something like mental um yeah and she she, she's been appointed as like the emissary over the uh duel and kincaid is her driver slash bodyguard slash gardener um (laughs) I, i love when uh dresden's saying to her like but if you've got all that knowledge, like you must be one of the most powerful spellcasters, like in the world. Why would you ever need a bodyguard? And she just turns around and says, "My feet don't reach the pedals." <laughs> <laughs> so many good moments in this chapter, I think, because yeah. I, I feel a lot of it's downplayed as well. Like, there's the whole bit where, um, oh, what is it? Harry's like, "Oh, can can Kincaid be trusted?" And she just turns to him and she's like, I don't know, can you be trusted? And he's like, well, I'm on contract with you until April. And then, you know, if, so- if someone doesn't make me a better offer, then I guess I'll continue being your, you know, working for you. She's like, oh, well, he-, he can be trusted until April. Does that work for you? Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, and, and it tells you so much about both of their characters that, like, um, We'll talk about it more. Let's get through the notes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of good stuff to drill into there. Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's a bit in the notes here which hopefully I'll remember to bring up when we discuss it properly. But as Ivy gives like some of her history and background, she explains that her mother is now in a coma as well. Um, and I mentioned that as a kind of prompt for later on when we discuss it. But um, yeah, she she explains that they're there as like emissary over the jewel, and their their role is to kind of um, ensuring that Dresden, you know, selects the types of jewels that are going down. Like the whole, he has, you know, two options. I think it is. <clears throat> um, and if this time round, Dresden picks magic, knowing that the uh, that Ortega will turn that down. But it might. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole idea is that he's picking this, knowing it won't work, in the hope that it will kind of give him more time to kind of actually come up with a plan here. Um. And yeah, Ivy responds to this with, you've got 24 hours to come up with a second option. Otherwise, yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll have to forfeit the duel and we'll, we'll kill you, basically. 
Um, yeah, I, I think it's that he needs to, to get a second, as in have someone in case he can't be there. Yeah, like it's it confuses me because I know he needs a second person to be there, but I know he also needs like a second, like yeah. option. And it's it, it, it is a bit confusing. <laughs> yeah, I I think I'm only finding like again because I listened to it distracted, and it's my first time with this book on audio. Um, and because normally when I'm listening to audio, I'm doing a bajillion other things. I think I'm just getting all my facts mixed up. So I do apologize. <laughs> Did we mention no what? <laughs> he needs both. Uh, basically, he needs to work yeah. out what's going to be what's going to be the fallback option and who's going to be his second uh, in the duel, or else Ivy is going to destroy Dresden herself. Um, yeah. And she fully believes that she is capable of it. I mean, I'd like to see that anyway. So I demand like a short story alternate reality type thing where that happens. Oh, yeah, that would be incredible. Purely for my own amusement. I'll write it tomorrow. Um, Do it. Yeah, and after the threat on Harry's life, Ivy and Kincaid, or the Archive and Kincaid, then, you know, leave and let Harry get on with other things. Um, Harry calls Father Vincent, who you remember from earlier as the guy who's trying to get him to go after the uh, Shroud. Um, and it's oh, I've lost my place in the notes. Um, and it's trying to cover up like, is the shroud actually the shroud, or is it like a forgery? I guess. Which hmm. you know, if you're going after a priceless religious artifact that possibly has supernatural powers, you kind of want to be sure. So I think that's a fair enough question. Um, I mean, luckily for him, Father Vincent doesn't believe in supernatural stuff, so... Uh. <laughs> um, and Harry calls up Michael as well, and he Michael's not around, so he attends to leave a message, but ends up having a bit of a hostile phone call with Charity instead, which goes as well as you can imagine, given that at this point in the series especially... They get on like a house. Wait, I don't understand. I was about to say get on like a house on fire, but isn't that usually described as a good thing? It is, which is funny because house on fire, very rarely a good thing in my experience. Yeah, that's, huh? But yeah, they don't get along. <laughs> they get along like a very upset house. Yeah. Um... Yeah. <laughs> And I mean the whole the whole basis of this is Harry trying to get Michael to be his second as well, which I mean, yeah, that's going to be a no from Charity. So, yeah. Chapter twelve. Harry heads to Burnham Harbor to follow the lead from the Oracle, and he finds a boat, boat or a ship, a boat, a handy boat, and luckily for him. He finds the Shroud. Who thought it would be that easy, right? But he then gets caught by two women who are waiting for their partner. And they learn from Harry that their partner is dead. A.K.A. these guys at the Church Mice, baby. Church Mice? That's right, isn't it? Church Mice. Church Mice. Yeah. Church Mice. Um, and they are named Francesca, which... And this is a weird one because 
I remember it being written as Francesca in the book, but in the audio, James Masters says like Francisca or something, and it really threw me off. Unless I've been saying it wrong all this time, but who knows? And uh, church mice person, church mouse, is uh, Anna Valmont. And surprise, surprise, by the way, the uh, partner they're waiting for is the dead guy who, yeah. Is in Butter's Morgue. Yeah. Um, who we find out is called Gaston. No one dies like Gaston. Oh man, like, I didn't even, I, I didn't remember him being called Gaston and I actually laughed when they mentioned his name because that song started playing in my head. <laughs> um, yeah they they handcuff dresden and you know they start interrogating him and it's it's clear that these two aren't aware of what's going on aren't aware of the bigger picture because they are completely oblivious to the whole concept of uh magic um and yeah like like you say harry informs them that you know gaston is dead to which they are understandably upset which is quite surprising not because I know because you think given their villainous nature, I suppose you you don't kind of run with the idea, you know, they'd have compassion. Mm. Um, but yeah, as um, they make plans to leave and tell Harry to like handcuff himself to some stairs. Um, as Harry goes to do that. And I remember, like, the imagery of this in my head. Like, a fucking, like, Denarian starts attacking the boat. And in my head, it was like a shark-headed thing. I don't think it's properly described at this point. But... No, it's it's just like Harry looks up and there's four pairs of eyes looking down at him. Yeah, like, I I don't know why, I just always imagined it as, like, Jaws. (laughs) With, like... I mean, you've got the boat, so... Yeah, I mean that's I think that's why. But yeah, I mean that's that wraps up the uh, chapters for this week. So um I apologize for my flakiness. I'm very tired. But how did you find this Pat? Like how did you find I know everything there's quite like with last week there's quite a lot to kind of unpack, I suppose. Yeah, um these are there are a couple of things here that I've been waiting to talk about for a while. And um, yeah, strap yourselves in audience because it's about to get wild. Um, so uh, the first thing that is crazy is that um, at the start of chapter nine, we get the explanation of how the fourth dimension of time works in the Dresden verse um, which is uh, strange um, it basically talks about like uh, people spirits um, the majority of beings that we come into contact in the Dresden files are fixed points in time that are only able to experience the flow of time coming onwards towards them um, but there are some things like the oracles that are able to experience all things that are happening at the same time. So they experience their entire existence all happening at the same time. And that's why they're able to prophesize because they're experiencing it, not because they're seeing into the future. That's an interesting point because 
prophecies um, come up a few times in the series. Time travel hasn't really been touched on much in the series, but there has been some talk around kind of chronological stuff. Um, and there's a lot of theories around the gatekeeper, particularly um, that make me think that he's found some way to exist in a similar way to these oracles or detach himself from that flow somehow. Hmm. Um, that's really interesting. Um, but I think, yeah, the important thing for now is that time is constantly moving at the same pace and you can either experience everything or you can experience things as they move towards you from the looks, from the sound of it. Um, and yeah, that's, um, that's a wild thing. And the way that Jim does it and not by like having Bob sit down with Harry for like a full chapter and be like, um, this baguette is time and <laughs> you are the meat filling and like take you through step by step uh, through some sort of like elongated metaphor. It's like a paragraph from Dresden being like, this is how it is. We know that to be the case. And this is how we understand time. It's, and it's like, oh, okay, that's cool. It's quite an interesting <laughs> how he does it because when it when it was explained and the whole concept of time and all that kind of thing, it made me think of um, slightly spoilery, but it's not giving away any plot details. And I also can't remember which book it's in. Um, the island of Demon Reach being built at various different points in time, or something, or like the yes. the um, wards on it being put there at different points in time, and it made me think of that. But then, yeah. I has Merlin fa- has the original Merlin found a way to detach himself from time, which I then found interesting because I think that section of that book had to be repeated to me like quite a few times for me to wrap my head around it. Whereas, yeah, y- you'd think that you'd, you'd think with that in mind that this explanation, like you say, would would have taken up like a chapter, when in actual fact it was a paragraph, if that. Yeah, um, but I also think it, there's a little bit of uh, Jim just trying to slide this in under the radar so that in the future he can be like, yeah, we talked about this in like book five. Didn't you read it? <laughs> that said, with the bulk of Dresden Files is from Harry's point of view. So this is possibly Harry's understanding of how time works. Yeah, that can also apply be... to what we know about demon reach and the original merlin yes and i can i can also see jim turning around and saying yeah harry just had it wrong uh (laughs) um time is more like a donut or something like that who knows um so yeah um but that that's just a, a, a a great thing that that jim just drops here and is like okay and we're moving on um uh, the re- uh, resisting the red court venom. There's a little bit of this that is, it's it's a cool moment because it's like okay, so Harry's making a potion. He's going to make a potion to deal with the shroud and to deal with the Denarians. Is he going to make like, or is it going to be for the for the 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 duel with Count Ortega? Uh, is he going to come up with some sort of potion he can take that will get him like vampire levels of strength or speed or something like that? It's like, no, his head is squarely 
at the place where he's thinking about Susan and he wants to be able to be with her and he's trying to come, uh, create this potion, spending time he could be spending on possibly saving his own life to instead make it possible for them to uh, to have time, more time together, basically. Um, it, it gives you a really cool window into like where his head's at um, in that moment. So I thought that was awesome. Um, the rest of the chapter... Um, uh, for chapter nine, not much more to dig into. Uh, the chat with McCoy um, is uh, fun, like we said. Um, it is worth mentioning that McCoy says in passing that he's looking for a telescope for the time that him and Harry were stargazing, and they thought that they'd found a planet, and it turned out to be yeah. a satellite. Um that's an interesting drop for later books. Just one to keep in your back pocket. Yeah, like, I was wondering that, like, I skipped it on the notes because I, I saw it there and I was like, what's the significance of this? And now that you mentioned <laughs> it, or a handy hint for later, I'm saying, like, oh my god! Yeah, um, and it makes you think that, like, the spell that McCoy casts, uh, I think it's only in the next book. Um, uh, the spell that he casts, he obviously was ch- is channeling some sort of emotion from that moment, mm. uh, which is, is super cool that uh, Jim just like slides that in. Awesome. Um, Bob being uh, torn up. Um, so, so when Bob comes back from spying on Marcone and uh, Ortega, he has like, chunks missing out of him and is like shattered um and he only comes back like three minutes before sunrise which is when he would die um well not die cease to exist i suppose death isn't really a concern for him um so that the it's another way that he he, uh, that jim raises the stakes just that cranks it up another level that i really enjoy um also, uh, one last thing from that chapter. God, there's so much here. Uh, we see how Dresden's wards work. Dresden has three candles that he keeps in his uh, sitting room and also in his um, laboratory. Uh, one is a candle that burns with a uh, green flame when everything is fine. Uh, then if something big is coming close, it goes to a amber flame. And if something is within, I think he says within a couple of feet of his apartment, it then goes to a red flame. And that's when he knows he is in serious trouble. Uh, and I just really enjoy that. That's a very logical thing. And I, I like that. And that is how I would make a ward as well. Very well done, Justin. Um, so, yes, Kincaid and the Archive, Ivy. Hooray! Uh, interesting characters, going to be real big. Uh, keep an eye on these guys. Um, great way to have them come into things as a neutral party, um, kind of separate from the plot, um, but um, a great way to introduce another faction. We were talking about factions earlier. These guys are pretty transient in faction. They can They could be good, they can be bad. Uh, the archive is uh, an archive of all written human knowledge. Um, that's not a moral thing. Um, and 
it's quite interesting to see where that that goes. Um, Ivy as a character is really really interesting to me, um, and and I think uh, she's an interesting concept to, if not Jim, then at least Dresden. Um, once uh, Dresden gives her a name, we see more and more of Ivy's personality surface. Mm. Um, so her mum was known as the Archive, her grandmother was known as the Archive, their their uh, ancestors were all known as the Archive, and Ivy is the first one to be named, and that changes how she sees herself, um, and we see a little bit of an expression of her personality when she sees Mr. the Cat at the end of the chapter and dives towards him, uh, <laughs> going, Kitty! Um which is very sweet and also very disconcerting when you think that she has the magical equivalent of like nuclear power uh, at her disposal and it's still just a young uh, eight or nine-year-old girl at heart. Mm-hmm. Um, you wanted to pick up on her mother? Yeah, um, it's not specifically her mother as such, but... and. I I can't I can't, uh, I can't remember how it was worded in the chapters and stuff like that, or if we have this information yet. But with the whole thing of her mother being known as the archive and the grandmother as well, my memory of Ivy is that similar kind of concept to Avatar: The Last Airbender. I guess like she's born with this knowledge, um, and it kind of just builds upon. If that makes sense. Yeah, she she even says because Dresden says I'm very sorry about your mother, and she says oh, why? Uh, I remember everything of her, um, including her love for me, and it's yeah, it's bizarre to think of it that way. Yeah, and we, and we also learn obviously that her mum's in a vegetative state, so it's like she almost passes all of this knowledge, all the knowledge she's ever accrued, uh, over to her descendant yeah it's, i mean that's i was just making sure i remembered it correctly more than anything because <laughs> i mean i i remember kincaid being in this book for some weird reason but i could i didn't remember ivy being in it which is a little bit odd um <laughs> yeah and i mean what did you think like the whole concept of ivy i guess like this knowledge being passed down through generations and generations that and especially with her being human as well it's quite a big big deal i suppose yeah the, the thing that actually really caught me off guard about this was that she is i would i personally think that she is the first fully original character that hasn't come off some sort of piece of folklore the Knights of the Cross, that's kind of a concept that's been around for, for a little while. Um, the kind of Templar Knight, werewolves, vampires, ghouls, ghosts, spirits, wizards, all of that has been in, in uh, lots of different types of fantasy and even urban fantasy um, in lots of cases. To my knowledge, the concept of the archive is wholly unique to the Dresden Files. Um, and that it, it, when I first found out about Ivy, made her feel a little strange by comparison. 
um, because she she's not falling into a typical archetype, um, and that kind of got me thinking because then I thought, well, why would you create the character of Ivy? Would you create the character of Ivy because there's a plot reason for the character of Ivy? Um, which, if there is, it hasn't been revealed yet. No. Um... But that being said, she has a millennia of human knowledge within her. And I would be very interested to see what she knows and remembers from the days of Merlin about Harry's mother and uh, basically all the secrets of the Dresden verse, because she could be the key to unlocking all of them, maybe. It's quite interesting. You say all this, and I'm just trying to remember all of her appearances at the moment, and she's got the main appearance here, and I think she's a major plot point in book 10? Yeah, she's she's like the MacGuffin of Book Ten. <laughs> yeah, which I mean, I uh, I, don't, I don't know. Like her, I don't. I won't spoil it, obviously. But she's with with her being the driving kind of plot, I guess, with Book Ten. It's it's very interesting that a character like this has been introduced, but hasn't really. I don't know. Like, it it feels like the kind of character that maybe not should have been introduced earlier but maybe referred to like there should be this whole expectation that maybe it's going to be a wise old man or something like that possibly yeah um but i i mean i i i I do know what you mean because there's kind of a you it's a bait and switch without the bait yeah almost like um it's surprising that the archive is a young girl, but we've not had a setup to subvert there. Whereas, like when we see a vampire, and uh, instead of it being like a typical Dracula, we get like Thomas Wraith. That's that's a subversion mm. and a, an urban fantasy twist on what the audience has preconceived. Whereas, because Ivy's a brand new thing, we don't have anything to build off. Um, that that being said, I I absolutely love the character. I just I I think that um, there is something about her that she just feels a little bit like she doesn't fit at first, and maybe that's the disconnect. There is that we're getting this like it was a young girl all the time, and it's like oh, what what was a young girl all the time? <laughs> <laughs> I kind of, um, kind of that. yeah. But I, that being said, super, super love the the idea. Um, it's a really nice twist on like a family curse, I guess. Yeah. Um, if you want, if you want to go down, I suppose that's the closest trope that she is. She could be like connected to, um, and I also think that the character of Ivy. Um, has a bit of a an autistic feel to her. I kind of get what um, you mean. I mean, I, I guess with the whole like thousands and thousands of years of knowledge, that's going to be a thing. Because you, you you take a character of that power level and her being a young girl as well. Of I 
think seven it was said mm-hmm. like you're gonna be you're not gonna have that normal upbringing at all like I imagine yeah. like her and the previous generations were extremely I don't know. We I, I want to say extremely guarded, but I'm just trying to think. Do we have any like indication of her background prior, like like just her day to day kind of life? This is this is the thing. Like we're told that she has Kincaid hired, and I'm sure that her past selves have other people that they've hired and such. But she's not affiliated with the White Council. She's not affiliated with the vampires because she's seen as an outside party to both. Mm. So. Is there like a group that protect her, or is she just like a floating agent in the world normally? And if she is, that's scary in itself. Yeah. So we want to uh, kind of pay attention to her like in further appearances. Certainly. Um, and Kincaid um, is just he's your merc. Um, Proper like Deathstroke sort of vibes, uh, or whoever you wanna you wanna reference. Uh, if you've got money, he'll do the job, and uh, if you pay, as long as you pay him first, he's your man. Um, very uh, pretty typical archetype. That being said, obviously he operates in a magical world. And he's managed to survive this long, suggesting that there is a little bit more under the hood. And that gets explored as we go on. Mm. Um, and I I, I want to talk about what I think the nature, the real nature of Kincaid is. But I don't think this is the place for it because we haven't really got into that yet. Yeah, I, I don't think that comes up until the next book, I think. Or the one after. Yeah. Um, cool, yeah. Uh, Dresden uh, admits that Ivy would be more powerful than him, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, we get a bit more about the jewel stuff. We, we touched on that last week, so uh, there's not much more to say there. Um, so the next really interesting thing to talk about is Chapter 11. Um, Harry calls the carpenters, and, and uh, as we say, he, got in, he gets into it with charity. But before he does we get the very, very first conversation between Harry and Molly Carpenter, um, another huge character for the series. Yeah, I I can... I mean, even with it being in the notes, it just completely went over my head. It was just kind of like, yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's interesting because Harry calls expecting Michael and he, he expects Michael and he's dreading that Charity will pick up the phone and is given this weird reprieve of it being Molly and Harry just doesn't know what to do for a second, um, which is, is really, really funny because uh, it kind of throws him onto the back foot. Um, but she's... Um, she starts off with, um, she makes like some jokes um, about like, uh, well, the first joke she she makes on uh, is um, that uh, Harry she knows that Harry won't want to talk to 
um, charity. Um, but the other thing that's really interesting, so the first thing that happens is Harry introduced himself and says, hi, he was uh, happy that it's not charity. Um, and then he remembers who Molly is, and he's like, Molly, uh, wow, you sound so grown up now. And then she replies with, yeah, the breast fairy came to visit and everything. Did you want to talk to mum? Awkward. Both in this encounter and the next time that Harry and Molly talk, which isn't that that far away, it is super obvious that Molly finds Harry attractive, even as a younger girl. Yeah. Um, and I really didn't pick up on it um, the first time I read this. Um, <laughs> I thought like she was joking around and stuff, but the next the next time they talk, particularly, um, which we'll talk about them, but um, like <laughs> it, it it's just uh, kind of the way that she goes straight to like, yeah, I've got boobs. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) um, which is a very teenage approach to uh, like romance I suppose yeah Um, and the next time that they talk she's very she's very similar and and not quite immature and um, at this point but uh, it's it's really interesting uh, to talk about um and immediately she ha- she strikes up a particular tone. She is jokey. She's snarky about her mum. She's snarky to her mum, which is saying something when your mum is Charity Carpenter. Um, it really feels uh, like... So she hands the phone over to Charity and then goes to another phone in the house to listen in, um, mm. which our younger viewers may not realise was a thing you used to be able to do. But it is. <laughs> um, yeah, so that, that was great to see her make her, make her first appearance. Uh, and we'll get into her more next week when her and Harry properly get to talk. Um, then, uh, so that then takes us on to chapter 12 and Harry goes to Burnham Harbour, uh, boards a boat called the Atranger, uh, which I think is... It is French. I just don't know what it's French for. Uh, I want to say stranger just because it sounds like that, but that is probably horribly naive and, uh, yeah, um, British of me, shall we say. Um, But (laughs) um, the church mice, Francesca and Anna Velmont, you picked up on this on the on the recap, and and I think what makes them such interesting characters is that they are thieves, they are not murderers, and they have that line. Um, it makes me think a bit like Gambit from the X Men. Yeah, um, I can get behind that. Where, where it's like there's a difference between being a criminal and being a murderer. Um, and that's a, an interesting moral compass because once you're outside of the law, I, I find a lot of, uh, a lot of fiction in general does this where it's like, 
yeah, if someone has decided to forego all laws, um, then they are okay with all of it uh, and being as evil as possible to get the job done. And there are lots of Dresden Files characters that will do anything uh, outside of the law and will have very little um, guilt around that. Um, but the church might present an interesting uh, moral compass because they have chosen to forego many laws. I mean, it's obvious that they uh, they do a, a lot of things um, to be able to steal from the Vatican. That takes some serious doing and also means that you probably don't have much of a moral guidance around religion. That being said, they don't seem to be killers unless they absolutely have to be. Um, and they don't, and they they seem to still have a degree of humanity. Um, so when Harry tells them that their associate, Gaston, no one dies like Gaston, uh, has uh, unfortunately passed, um, they're upset. They're shaken um, like human beings instead of like. Mm oh, you're a criminal, you're an otherworldly creature suddenly who doesn't get upset and just kills mercilessly. And I think that it presents a really nice contrast to, to the Denarians who are these alien, otherworldly creatures that seem to go unfazed by just about everything, um, as we'll see time and time again. And in the next chapter, especially. <laughs> yes. Um... <laughs> Yeah, so um, is there anything else that you wanted to pick out there, Rob? Sorry, I know that I, I waffled through a lot of that. Um, as I said at the start of this, uh, it's it's quite a, it's a late night recording. I know that uh, Rob is quite tired and uh, yeah, I just wanted to jump in and, and get us through this. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's fine. I mean, I've just discovered that I actually have work to do for tomorrow. So I'm now just trying to figure out what that is. Um, but I mean, to, to answer your question, um, no, I mean, uh, there's not much that I can think of adding here. I mean, it's not, it's probably not worth talking about the church mice properly yet because we don't get that much from them until the next few chapters, really. Like beyond the yeah. whole, uh, they draw the line at not killing and all that kind of stuff. I'd say so. Brilliant. Um, in which case, uh, do you want to take us out, Rob? Yeah, as uh, as always, thank you for the support. We've scraped 4,500-ish downloads, I think, last time we checked, which was a couple of days ago, so it's probably doubled since then. <laughs> it's it's um, insane. It really is. Yeah, I, I mean, we say it every week, but we're always surprised by how well the show seems to be doing. I mean, we're almost a year into this. So, thanks thanks for all your support so far. Um, as always, share, follow, subscribe. Um, next week we'll be doing chapters 13, 14, 15 and 16. That's right, I can count. And uh, as always... Sorry? Damn straight, you can count. Yeah. It's not my yeah. area about. can only count to Percy, though. Before I struggle. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Yeah. Um, as always, crack open a can of Coke, because you've been listening to the Paranet Podcast. 
with your hosts, me, Rob Davis, and me, Patrick Lunn. And we will see you next time. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye.